Welcome to New Models. <laughs> is, should I say New Models or New Models? How do you pronounce it? Do I always like say New it? Models. Me too. Welcome to the seventh episode of the New Models podcast. This conversation features New York-based cultural analyst Toby Shorin, who earlier this fall published an essay on the diminishing market value of creative production and how the dynamics of platform capitalism and decentralized networks are dramatically changing the meaning of originality and authenticity, even as quote-quote originality and authenticity are evermore what the creative market demands. We recorded this podcast a few weeks ago over dinner when Carly and I were in New York using Zoom recorders, so it's going to sound a little bit different than our normal podcast. Don't worry, we'll be back in the studio with Daniel on our next episode. live from new york uh, live from williamsburg brooklyn actually living a weird multiverse version of our life if we was successful and was able to live on north six but we're luckily enough to be visited by toby shoren toby we found actually from what well, his site subpixel.spaces well that's really a, a repository for all your essays yes and they're actually like all really really good um Hey. We're inspired by because we read the most recent one was report the diminishing marginal value of aesthetics and then I lo- and then I looked uh, you up on Twitter and you were following me and I was so psyched and I was like this has to happen <laughs> but um, maybe just uh, to set up this cast we could ask you to give a few a few notes on like some of the vectors in this essay for people who haven't yet read it yeah cool. Uh, I think I, I start out the essay by characterizing how I understand aesthetics to to have value in a society that, that values novelty. I sort of set up a, a spectrum from highly novel to, to highly normalized aesthetics and explain that the novel ones are very useful for selling to a, a group of consumers that value that. And as things consumed by that group of consumers, by particular aesthetics become normalized, and move leftward on on the the cultural normalcy spectrum and eventually become obsolete. I think that struck a chord with like a lot of people who do try really hard to produce novel works. At least that's what it seemed like. People seem to say like, wow, that's really what I've been doing. I mean, just just the fact that you modeled it, especially working in aesthetics and cultural production, it's it's supposed it's it's supposed to be some kind of black magic. Or, it is. It's right? supposed to be like but a very holy thing. The the intersection between actually analysis and theory and and kind of deconstructing how cultural production works that intersection is actually super rare and kind of just the realm of like these very expensive subscription only (laughs) trend consulting kind of companies actually and it almost ends up feeling really insidious in that way like people who are doing this analysis like do exist but they are paywalled behind some the craziest expensive paywall paywall ever right like closely to a think tank of some sort so yeah honestly though i was 
wonder how effective those those things are. Like earlier, we were talking about Dina, and she has this piece on ketamine and added value. Dina Yego yeah. uh, from K-Hole. And uh, in this piece, she described how when she was producing these trend reports and the ones that K-Hole produced specifically, but then also the you know bespoke material that, that they delivered to uh, clients that hired them, at no point did like, any of the ideas that, that she contributed get adopted by, by these companies. Right. And, and the only conclusion that she's been able to reach is that big companies buy these expensive trend reports because they, this is my words, not hers, but it's because they need to feel like they're in control. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's definitely something I've seen for, seen for myself as well. And the only way to operationalize these types of insights is to execute on them yourself. I mean, as, as I am also, you know, a person who, who's making cultural work, uh, when I'm thinking about how to, like, monetize that work, basically, like, the, the most obvious thing is to, like, keep producing free writing and then sell consulting services. <laughs> right. But I already know what kind of game that is. That's that's being the court soothsayer. Right. I can't actually execute on any of those strategies. Right. And also, the, like, the more time you spend marketing these things to people, like, the less time you're actually out there in the culture picking up on, on the insights. That's also so, true. So yeah. I think the quality of the reports go down the the further away you are. What okay. were some of the things that compelled you to write this piece? Um, I guess I've been watching what is happening in the graphic design landscape for a while. And for a few years, um, I was just fascinated by like the evolving aesthetic games that were being played. Like when these... People are going to get afraid when I say this already, but like when that cohort of Yale MFA graduates came right. out and sort of took over the Twitter game. The and cohort being? Being like Eric Hu, David Rudnick, Raf Rennie is like another another one, right? right? And, and there are some others, there are other graduates, of, of course, but those are the ones who kind of were Twitter famous. And I guess watching people kind of mock their styles or like how how their aesthetics like the aesthetics that they were pursuing trickle down into the rest of the scene and and then having friends who are graphic designers myself and watching them struggle with the difficulties of not only like reconciling the fact that those styles were ubiquitous but also thinking that those people were somehow pushing things forward so wanting to do like their styles and at the same time dealing with the, the challenges of auteurship copying um whether like the designer as author is like a thing that can happen watching that made me realize that there's there was something definitely difficult for for graphic designers themselves to deal with and i tried to write this essay a few times um <laughs> one was a, an angle on like how graphic design is just like fashion but i realized it wasn't really just graphic design it's just like fashion a lot of things are can be understood according to the logic of fashion so that was not a good angle right then I tried another angle that was more inspired by some like 90s graphic design discourse by Jeffrey Keaty, a well-known graphic designer and and critic who is also sort of known for his bespoke typefaces, kind of like Rudnick is today. I tried to use his ideas to like critique graphic design, but also that essay ended up not working out. Um, <laughs> And then I was on the plane reading this book that's really popular in Silicon Valley. It's like 30 years old called Crossing the Chasm. It's about the technology adoption life cycle and the difficulties of, of marketing and innovative technology uh, to, to various consumer segments. And that ended up becoming like the last section of the essay where I started realizing like, oh, 
we, you can look at image production as not just an, a professional activity, but something that's being adopted across all consumer segments. And these platforms, which not only serve as like the distribution channels, but also make image production very easy, like Twitter or Snapchat or, or Instagram videos, are, are participating in this, um, this, this media landscape where images are getting devalued. And that ended up being like the, the, the last part of the essay. Um, and there were, I, I realized like there are actually a lot more ideas from the um, normal tech uh, analysis discourse that could be brought in to understand the, like what's happening to aesthetics. Uh, and these ideas ha have already been applied to media, but they're mostly deployed to understand businesses and like they're geared towards an investment audience. But they clearly have big implications for the people who are actually doing the cultural production. Uh, and that really hasn't been explored that much yet, even though the livelihoods of, of many cultural producers are at stake. <laughs> so, yeah. In terms of talking about copying versus originality, I mean, do you see this, though, as almost being like a, a where we reach another side of a pendulum that kind of does move throughout history? Because I was thinking, for instance, in a way when, like, especially, like, subcultural signifiers were more scarce, there was actually unabashed copying. Like, you, like, you'd read Rolling Stone. It was the only source to even know what punk or, like, these things were if you didn't live in a city. Yeah. And you'd take those codes and you'd, you'd just take them and repeat them. You'd, or, or a certain style of music. You'd take them and repeat them. And, I mean, this concept of being original or a poser or something didn't really exist. That was, like, a very 90s. This kind of obsession with originality, to me, seems like a very sort of... It was something that I remember really being strong in the 90s. But I mean, do you think it's really kind of an unprecedented time or do you see it as kind of just enter like a shift in attitudes towards aesthetic and cultural Is production? it a paradigm shift or is it just a, like a pendulum switch? That's what I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, novelty is not necessarily originality, but novelty is subjective. Completely. It depends. I, w I was receiving some um, really interesting criticism and feedback on this essay by this really excellent marketing consultant, Tom Critchlow. And he was suggesting that there is probably more innovative work happening than ever before. Mm. And it is easier to be a creative laborer than ever before. So doesn't that mean that there probably is more innovation happening, more novelty? But uh, an important point there is novelty is definitely subjective. It's definitely a moving yeah, target. Even if there is technically more I innovation happening, on the individual level, on the aggregate level, that's very hard for consumers and other cultural producers to understand because right. everything it can be seen by everybody. So even if my friend Betty just my friend Betty just made a piece and sent it to me, and it's it's kind of like a bitmap um, like numeral set uh -huh. um, with some interesting glyphs in it, and then she also sent me a tweet that that David made. That's <laughs> David Rudnick and. Neither of them had seen the, the work, but there, there were definitely some similarities, right? You could call them both innovations on an individual level, but only one of them will be, a, like, bitmap fonts are not new right. in any sense. Th those pieces of work have nothing to do with one another. David is the one who will probably be perceived as, like, having originality there because he has a huge platform and my friend doesn't have a huge platform. Um, but, like, could, 
If, but if both of those things were posted in isolation on a blog by themselves and any rando saw them, nobody would think it's original. Right. So nobody would perceive that. Like maybe somebody would respond to it and like relate to it in a meaningful way. That And so that's interesting. But would they perceive it as original? I'm not sure. And I think that gets to this other point I've been making in other work about how like authenticity is a very outdated paradigm in an environment that does not have these scarcity dynamics that you were talking about. When I start to th- actually think like, oh, define originality or something, I always get into these computational models of like, well, and like you said, the example you just said, it's like, well, everybody collectively is sort of being influenced by a similar pool of of, right. of influences. I mean, in a way, we operate like AI, training ourselves on data sets to innovate something new anyways. And, and when you start thinking about it that way, there is, of course, no originality in the first place, but I think what we're talking about is that I guess these these uh, these sort of mythologies that operate in cultural production and in creating things. I mean, especially around authenticity. It's like I'm working on a commercial job right now, and they're asking, you know, they they're really they really want it to feel authentic. Yet at the same time, they want me to have every action, gesture, etc., pre-planned and storyboarded, which th- that's not authentic. Yeah, right. I would really love to hear what your client thinks is, is authentic. Like, how do they visualize what, what authentic is? Well, I, I think the interesting part of it is that it, it's something that the consumer could believe was sort of spontaneously self-created by the market that they're trying to appeal to and depict. So the, the image that's coming to my mind as the you know polar opposite of this is the highly choreographed Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, right? Uh-huh. So that one like looks way overproduced. So it's obvious how that, that it gives it this like very strange and yeah, choreographed feeling. But is that is that a similar setup to what you're dealing with? Like, what's the if if you if you are able to talk about the brief? I'm really interested to hear how how the like what are the shots or or have right. have they just given you a lot of creative freedom? But can I intervene for a yeah, second? Yeah, yeah, there like, yeah. There's a couple of vectors. Um, one though to connect these two things, where like there's influencer authenticity, right? There's like influencer authenticity. Like I just woke up like this. Yeah, like I, you know, I right. woke like woke up like this authenticity. You're about, you're about to get me into real pedantic territory here. There's, <laughs> there's so many th- things being discussed. I'm all, 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 I'm excited to get into this. But there's also, I mean, Wait, also, one, also, 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 one, one more thing. Yeah. I just want to say I'm bracketing authenticity from originality, and these are yeah. these are yes. these are two different things. Of course. And I also want to say that when it comes to originality, also authenticity, there's a massive artistic discourse that goes back to at least Duchamp, right? Um, and there's also a conversation here about globalism and localism how like one needs a code set that everybody agrees on in order to like recognize something as um as as being original to that scene but there's there's one important thing though about my process that i just want (laughs) to say for the record ultimately what my job is in situations like this is to be able to trojan horse Mm. something real into a corporate language and operating system. Right. Like, right. Like I I think there's plenty of kids who could deliver something great and authentic, but they don't know how to Trojan horse it into corporate OS, Uh which is actually, it's crazy. That's that's why they're giving, that's why like six, 14 year olds are like, are like, 
paid to sponsor certain brands on Instagram because they they like can't help but be authentic because right. So it's like, like the corporations are Trojan horsing themselves into yeah. into like teenager OS, and then yeah. I'm like Trojan horsing Trojan horsing teenager authenticity into corporate OS. It's all these people have to Trojan horse each other's like, conversations <laughs> into each I other so. in order to maintain authenticity. Um, yeah, that's a model. <laughs> I don't know, but that's... <laughs> what I'm thinking about right now is there's a woman I met at uh, a conference who is doing some really fascinating work on authenticity and influencers huh. and how platforms that you know make their money on, on influencer economies, yeah. basically Instagram and, and Snapchat, um, how monetizing those platforms through influencers is predicated on the idea of authenticity. The insight that I took from her talk, this woman is named Vicky O'Mara. In my interpretation of it is that authenticity it is constantly eroding or like depleting sure. for for influencers because they're constantly selling out in a way. Uh-huh. I, again, it's like yeah. selling out yeah. is, is something that's yeah. like intrinsic. You can only believe in selling out if you believe in authenticity. Totally. Um, but yeah. but like lots of lots of people do it's my agenda to make them not but lots of people do so like let's start from there as like they continue to like erode their trust that is based on their authentic performance as influencers and at the same time instagram the trust that they have as a platform is that um influencers are able to like deliver an authentic performance and that people on the platform are like going about just living their lives and that's like what makes these types of ad placements so effective as the the, the performers, the influencers, are depreciating a, a substance that you could call authenticity. They also have to keep making more and more authentic claims um, in order to like maintain their business model. And, and this creates this tension where sometimes like people want to advocate for things or, or like influencers need to advocate for products that are sponsoring them without using like the sponsored uh, like hashtag ad that, that the FTC requires that that's like a very shady economy right like right. The, the slippery slippery things happen or, or another another great example is like influencers on on podcasts the performance needs needs to deliver increasingly authentic performances in order to escape the overall dynamics of a platform that is clearly and unequivocally about its Authenticity-based business model. Absolutely, like, absolutely. Yeah, the the problem is like there's an asymptote. There, there's a yeah. Th- this dialectic between like selling out and delivering authentic performances. Both need one another, yeah. and that's that's such bullshit. That's why we shouldn't believe in authenticity anymore. Uh, it's well, because it's 100%. not a particularly useful way to think about. To me, in a way, I always think the the believability of it or the authenticity almost has to be judged by like the whole of the world let's building. Say, let's say believability instead of right. authenticity, because that's the word we're trying to avoid yeah, using okay. here, right? Like, yeah, so, try to avoid that word as much as possible and let's see what happens. Well, we, like, yeah. Lord of the Rings, you believe it when you're watching it because of the world it's in, but if you, like, right. if, like, halfway through Taxi Driver, like, a hobbit came out and, like, you know, made his mohawk grow ten feet tall, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> right. right. Believing, right. like, when you suspend disbelief in films, for right. instance, right? Like, if you set up a world... Right when you set up a world like from the beginning, if the magical is happening, then you believe it okay. and you go along with it. It's yeah. like if you're okay. an influencer, sure. which is okay, also wait. gets into virtual influencers, because if from the beginning you know they're fake and they're shilling you things in a way that's almost more 
authentic or okay, believable. Yes, which is why I want to say a few th- a few okay. things. The idea of like like a like a a Deleuze Guattari model where like the machine needs to constantly break down in order to keep going, right? And in the art world, we see that in particular, one can only have value by breaking the value system. Um, Michael Kreber famously did the same show several times in the span of one year, increasingly devaluing the paintings that he made because he remade the same paintings for every show. Um, so Didn't that also it. somehow increase the value of paintings? Well, because it was successful. <laughs> so then, yes, right? So, I mean, of course, these are like, they, they, they before you know it, it's like a quadratic equation of like, is this valuable or not mm. valuable if you take away and whether it's seen or if it was remediated or not or whatever. Secondly, when an artist does something to destroy, quote, quote, destroy their market, that negative activity is recuperated as what makes the artist valuable. So it's somehow anticipated and built into the value of the work. Um, Michael Kreber, Merlin Carpenter, a lot of the artists that were associated with the Cologne scene, or I don't know, I don't want to use references that are oblique in this context, so we can go to that's, something that's different. A, no, that's okay. What's yeah. interesting is I love that you brought up the podcasting uh, question, A, because we would love someone to sponsor our podcast. So we will get... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, no, I'm not kidding. Well, we have a podcast sponsor. But what I think is interesting is, is I mean, do you listen to like, say, podcast, uh, Pod Save America? Or you said you're not no, big on podcasting podcast, at all. Yeah. Okay, they're a very, they're one that they're like some guys who worked for Obama and they're, uh, they started a media company called Crooked Media. So every time yeah, they, right, yeah. every time they give a URL, like, you know, check ZipRecruiter backslash Crooked Media. And so they've built into their very URL, their like discount URL, this idea that there is a complicity. And some of their ads are like clearly making fun of the advertiser, but yet because there's the idea that it's authentic it's like still seen as a valuable advertising. Oof. I mean, and then we start to crazy. approach controversy right. marketing. They're like, well, that's also true. Right. There's lots of things to say yeah. about this. Lots, lots of places to go with this. Not to moralize this conversation, but I, whenever authenticity is being brought up, there's always this assumption that like whatever is clearly being implied as inauthentic and is wrong, is, is morally inadmissible mm-hmm. and I'm curious if that's the stance you're taking oh not at all I mean Wait, could you repeat that one more just so you're saying like if something is if we're using if we're still using this false binary of authentic inauthentic then one is actually using that as a cover for moral amoral Yes, right. that's correct. Or immoral. That's yes. correct. And I would say no, but it's more complicated than that because the transgression here is like what creates value. So it's always a transgression in these situations. The breaking of the trust bond, the pushing the trust bond as far as it can go okay. that seemingly produces yeah. a kind of value. Meaning, yeah. Meaning. Okay, yeah. cool, yes. All right, it's much more interesting to analyze this, like what the cricket media people are, are doing from the perspective of like, what is actually creating the value here right. than it is always. to understand it from this like, is it right or wrong? Like, is it authentic or not? Perspective. Yeah, we like, have no, is there right yeah, or wrong? Like, right. I mean, 
Don't be yeah, or or yeah. there there are much better ways to establish whether it's right or wrong than than like authenticity. We haven't even defined authenticity here. I think at the base of it is a trust bond. Oh, or, well, I was going to say also right, but if we're talking about like believability or authenticity as being not tied to money, it's like destroying your work or destroying your value. I mean, it, right? If an influencer like was sponsored by um, Vidal Sassoon for a year and then afterwards like did a post of them burning their shampoo like right when they gain some authenticity back well the example that carly originally mentioned was that the crooked media guys will like like shit on their sponsors basically they'll roast their sponsors and and like that is what constitutes their authenticity performance right what's interesting also is that of course advertising also always reflects on the media source we see that in you know vogue is as good as it's like first second cover advertisers right and so crooked media then gains legitimacy by developing advertising relationships or accepting advertising relationships that they abuse. So if they can be abusive and they're the, you know, the advertising party is happy with that, then they somehow, that reflects back on, well, whatever we're saying about Obama or Trump, in this case it's a political podcast, is then somehow more valid because you know they can call a spade a spade if they're if they're like in a position where they have to sell advertising. They can say this is like not something that we think is that great. That's really interesting. We just want to give a thank you to all the listeners who have been sending us links recently and a PSA for those listening for the first time. New Models is at its core an aggregator for the culture sector or as Tank Magazine accurately put it, a platform where people can encounter new information and ideas free from the psychic baggage of social media. I think everyone has too much psychic baggage already. So listeners out there, send us your links. If you read something you think is really important, if you published or produced or wrote something you think is really important, send it to us. There's a box on our homepage, newmodels.io, where you can send us links or tips directly. And of course, our email is desk at newmodels.io, where you can send us links, tips, or just say hello. Back to the podcast. I don't want to use the word authenticity to like describe this dynamic. I don't think it's relevant. So basically what you're describing is the podcaster has a relationship with its um, patrons. Mm. And in order to, uh, we do need the concept of authenticity here to describe like how the the subscribers or the viewers, the audience relates to the podcaster. They believe it. Right. So they, they believe in authenticity. They, they need an authentic performance in order for the podcasters to sell the advertisement to, to the sponsor. But in order to de- deliver the performance of authenticity, the, the podcasters will make fun of, of the, the sponsor, client, right? The, sponsor, the client, yeah. right? So, and, you know, they might do that by, like, how do they make fun of it? I would say it's probably 10% of okay. their like of, of the the sponsors that they get they'll get a product that they clearly convey to their readers or their, their listenership at least I read it this way mm-hmm. as a superfluous commodity something that we don't mm-hmm. really need mm-hmm. and it will be they'll they'll really uh, overemphasize it they'll be like don't you he 
need your your underwear delivered every Got day? It. Isn't it. it necessary to have to throw away your socks at the end of the week? And they'll perform mm. things that are very clearly opposite of their values. In so a so they'll way. they'll essentially refuse to do an authentic performance, and they'll do an overly choreographed performance, right. like the Kendall Jenner ad, right? A, a, in order to let their subscribers be in on the joke. Correct. In a way. That is exactly um, right. They get you part they, of the group. Right. So they're able to develop um, an abusive relationship, is what yeah. you said, with their with their sponsors, and the value that that they're able to create for themselves, like the, the wealth that they can generate, it is based on that authentic performance. And in their antagonistic rejection of their sponsors, they're also able to establish like an authority that legitimizes the political statements they have to make. Precisely. Right? Yeah, precisely. Okay. So that's precisely. that's the dynamic here. Precisely. And that's exactly the dynamic that would not be a problem if nobody believed in authenticity. That is the exactly the type of thing that makes authenticity concepts toxic to begin with. Uh-huh. I think one one thing we could say is that the need to deliver increasingly authentic performances as an influencer. Yeah. <laughs> well, check this out. Inevitably looks like the art world and the theory world where every piece of discourse has been reduced to like a really shitty third order take on like deconstruction. Wow, this is this is this is this is this is new territory, okay? So on the tame-ish side, on we have uh, people establishing their their value and and legitimacy as, as influencers, podcasters by by joking about their sponsors. Then we have like meme culture that like delivers you know very lightweight roasts of, of capitalism and and stuff, yeah, and that's yeah. how like they get followers. And then on the other side, you have this like media theory bubble economy that is totally held up by basically the same thing that the memes are doing, but with more theory involved. Right, like they're they're and using like decon deconstructionist uh, techniques in in order to talk about how bad things are. Right. Um, the problem is that's where like most of the art industry is deriving its value right, right. now is is from this like this like critical attitude, this ability to deliver th this like authentic performance. So we can see that the art world, the media world, right. the influencer situation is all held up by this one tenet of of what holds up that entire paradigm. Right. Well, I want to I want to also take this to uh, I, I want to maybe go more more ma I don't know what this is macro or older or whatever, but we find the basis for this in an art context in in institutional critique, especially of like the 90s, right? When institutions were outmoded in relation to where social values were going in the time of an AIDS crisis, in the time of identity mm. politics, in a time when not there were no women in canonical collections, mm. at a time when there was, you know, bad representation. Mm. Also at a time when um, the people who were giving the most money had their names on the door. Mm -hmm. So it was clear if you were attacking the institution, what yeah. structures you were fighting against, and literally which individuals you were critiquing or you were right, pulling the bottom sure. out. I mean, the Sacklers dealt always in older art, so they're the wrong, they're the wrong name. But somebody mm. of their stature, they gave you... 10k to do an exhibition you deliver to them an empty space where you've actually taken the drywall off the walls so you you know yeah. there's a there's an act of critique there that is that is evacuating value from people that you imagine to be to have gotten this money by like mm. wrong means yeah 
so what I think is interesting is, and so you know, there's a real value to, to that act of evacuation right. in, in in the art world in the '90s and even early yeah. 2000s. No, that definitely I makes definitely sense. Agree. I think the problem, and I'm really freestyling with this, so I, I'm sure it can hey, go be off. like broken down. Show but me like, the bars. I see, I see there in the 2000s with the rise of Proto Web 2, you see a global kind of, and, and you know, the Hans Ulrich Obrist machine, Eflux, you see a push towards globalization um, where you vastly expand the, the, pres- the presumed audience for a lot of these gestures. But they don't, you know, somebody who is in France doesn't necessarily care what an institution in San Francisco is doing. Mm. Just like somebody in London doesn't necessarily care what someone in Shanghai is doing. Yeah, I'm not exactly cool. sure how to connect all of it. But I think when you know mm. what institutions you're critiquing, then these acts, these negative acts make a lot of sense. Right. But we're so, not actually critiquing Snapchat. We're not actually critiquing the structure. Yeah, exactly. So, fil- so to like take that for a second, the, I think... So what you described is there there was a time when these critical gestures were meaningful, viable, and powerful mm-hmm. to um, the, the stakeholders that were involved. That's right. And, and the audience. And, and Yeah, and the audience. And globalizing the discourse, or like the internet happened, the discourse is like shared by everybody. There's clearly an international art scene that subscribes to like the mainstream artistic discourse which is marxist it's really marx influence it's really deconstructionist that has devalued the individual gestures of critique because even though everybody has access to those gestures like in terms of visibility not everybody has the same context so it's less meaningful exactly is, is what is exactly. what you describe yeah yeah I think that's a pretty good, like, globalism versus localism take, and there aren't many good ones. Um, <laughs> but, like, yeah, the access access to discourse versus, like, context relevance right. is really important. Right. Like, even though those local relevances aren't there, or, like, I, I don't have any connection to, like, the art world in Tokyo, so I don't really understand, like, what it means, even right. though something might be publicized, like, widely on, on Design Boom or something like right, that. Right, right, right. The normative mode of critique, or, like, the the act of deconstruction, like, trying to destroy the context, like, critique something in, in particular is what is valued. R- regardless of, like, whether people have those local connections or not, that's that's the type of work and the type of theory that's being produced. Right. And I struggle to see that as anything. And and as as we discussed, the value is derived from from those things, regardless of whether meaning is being generated. Right. So it's difficult for me to see that as anything other than a bubble. I yeah, I that's would true. like to call it yeah, like no, the critical true. theory bubble. It is. And right. I, it is. This is that's this is what happens. Like. Right before a bubble pops, or or in in terms of the art world, that means like there's going to be a paradigm shift. Yeah. And what I expect will happen is the critiquers, the the, <laughs> yeah. the critical theorists, the critics, the critics, okay. the, and the critical theorists. Right. Well, there will always be art critics, I yes, suppose. They but will, like yeah. art yeah, critical theorists, the yeah. critical theorists, both the people who are practicing and the people who are doing theorizing, will start to be seen as the old guard and like a new set of optimists who are willing to like submit themselves to these processes of capital w- would emerge 
And what, what would we call those people? <laughs> yeah, is there, a word, is there a word for that? Is there a word for that? Audience? Audience, can you, can you say the word? They're accelerationists. Um, so, like, I think it's obvious that this is already happening. And, yeah. and of course, this perspective yeah. totally explains yeah. the sort of, um, like, we can't associate with the, the, these accelerationists. Like, no, it, they must be Nazis. Like, we must, like, shut down these galleries. Of course, there's like young people involved in the old guard too. Like yeah. every everybody's involved in the discourse, and and there's not a political middle ground. But this is clearly you know, like a phenomenon that, that's happening. Definitely I, a very clear. Yeah. That's a very very clear analysis of like where emotionally the rift is coming from between like '90s inspired critical theorist and the like blockchain inspired accelerationist, yeah. and like why <laughs> they'll go inspired. to a point of being right. like. One cannot, as soon right. as one accepts the internet, one accepts Hayekian economics <laughs> and is clearly <laughs> anti-Semitic. Do you really think yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, and right. like, that's really like, mm. that's where the hysterics are coming from around right. this is actually, is actually what you very clearly mm. diagrammed. Although I just want to, I heard something really interesting last night that I'm, I'm thinking about today. Um, from Bethany Tabor, who runs like the Good Death Roundtables at Pioneer Works. And she was telling me about how in like the 19th century, when electrical signals were first realized, or like were first understood to exist, and uh, you could build devices that like detected electrical signals, artists developed this like extreme interesting fascination with like the presence of ghosts and the undead and like huh. ooh ESP and all this stuff and like built all of these devices to try to detect the presence of ghosts and there is an explosion of artistic activity around around those concepts because now you could scientifically detect you could build machines that could detect the presence of the unseen huh. and just how ridiculous that is made me think about the people who are basing their artistic practices around the blockchain today like, <laughs> what most people think the blockchain can do or is going to do is about as accurate as believing like the presence of electrical signals mean there's <laughs> That's ghosts. Very true. Like <laughs> nothing is gonna be democratized. Nothing is gonna be decentralized. Like centralization versus decentralization happens on like so many different things. As Kia Kreutler said like on Twitter the other day, messianic decentralization narratives are past their expiration date or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it was something that good. So, so right. Like Kia's he is great. Yeah. yeah, she's dead. Yeah, right. she's great. And I, I haven't met her personally, but keep doing what you're doing, Kia. You're yeah. awesome. <laughs> but, what is it? My, my little yeah. aphorism with decentralization didn't work for atoms, and it certainly won't work for anything larger. Wow, that's a, that's a nice one. That's really good. So I guess, like, both the new, uh, you know, the... the blockchain art hype beasts and the critical theory bubble economists are, <laughs> are both uh, you know, ideological and, and misguided in some sense. Yeah. Um, but I think the question remains, how should the art world reinvent itself to deal with post-scarcity, post-authentic media environment that it's dealing with? I mean, I would say, first of all, recognize what the new institutions actually are. Hmm. I think that's a, like, hmm. we know, uh, we call it What are the new institutions? Well, I mean, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, like, one could easily say the big stack aggregators are the institutions. I mean, hmm. institutions always were ag aggregators. I mean, right. that's always been their function. 
and you know but MoMA is not the place like any protest that's happening at MoMA is already happening or against MoMA is already happening within the enclosure of MoMA but I mean what are the ways of critiquing the big stacks um, or can one create outposts outside of them that don't try to rival them like I like new models is not trying to become the next Facebook but we hope to yeah. provide some kind of alternative space that could inspire yeah. a way of creating a wedge against what that like creating air holes in those stacks yeah so I think that's where it would begin but that's coming from an art background I wonder as a designer and as a web developer yourself I mean I wonder what you would imagine nobody hired me to be a web developer and, and, <laughs> I'm going to deliver that ask, six months Slate with really shitty JavaScript. <laughs> I mean, as we were talking, I mean, I, I tried to map some of these things, especially when we're talking about like podcasters and also teasing your sponsor, right? Ah. And when don't look at my map, don't look at my map. But basically, like talking about uh, when I was mapping this and authenticity and intersection of all these things, right? You have like a podcaster is authentic and trusted and smart, and there's a sp- and they have listeners, and then you have this sponsor that wants to access the listeners. And sponsors generally, right, because they are the source of money and capital, people want to hold them accountable, and they're wary of them. It ends up with this kind of S and M relationship where if the sponsor allows the authentic trusted podcaster to tease them to belittle them and the sponsor is cool with that suddenly the sponsor gains a sense a sort of authenticity right Uh, and it's almost like the listeners can like almost forgive the sponsor for being a corporate entity in this weird S&M kind of power game you know we talk about there's controversy marketing has been on the edge of this conversation which is a whole nother frightening thing in itself but maybe there is a sort of you know dom and sub relationship Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. um, sponsors or corporations that where if they allow themselves to appear sub to something purely authentic then they gain a sense of authenticity whereas if who they're sponsoring they have to say we love this product blah blah blah, right the sponsor still maintains its position as everything that makes it unauthentic but if the the sponsor allows itself to be subbed but i want to give it a possible answer to what you were saying where the authenticity of the abusive podcaster the authenticity of the act of abuse is contingent on the viewer believing that the advertiser oh, is unwitting. Knees and a beam of yeah. this. Yes, it's unwitting in, in, no. in that relationship. There has to no. the abuse has to be believable. Yeah. Otherwise, if the uh, if the sponsor right, if the sponsor is complicit in the if they pre-cooperated <laughs> the oh abuse, then it's then it's this is but this yeah. is also like this is also like you know art and in, in institutional right. critique one hundred and one mm. in this. this oh, so excuse me. So <laughs> there's I mean, a lot, of, but at the same time, like the and and at the same time the sponsor has to be willing to suspend their disbelief yes like the the whole thing is just um uh what's what's the best way to describe this yeah a, a, cosplay yeah <laughs> yeah um, larping larping i was trying to think of another example i was well, trying I was to think, think about think the flack that like tide the... took for like the tide oh, pod fiasco right, this right, is right. like this there, maybe That's no true. sponsor or, or no podcaster no influencer was responsible for that but like tide took a beating but actually, they didn't. Oh my that God. was right. a great media yeah. for them, right? Well, that was straight up controversy marketing. What? That was an S- what I'm calling S and M marketing. Yeah, no, subdom. This is all speculative marketing. I think we're in right now, like spe- you know, spec mark 
This is this is new genre. I do have one example that I wanted to bring up okay. from the '90s. OK Cola. All right. So basically, I think it was PepsiCo or Coke. They tried to do, they got some hotshot. This guy was all over failed.com things. He was a hotshot marketing guy. I forget. I read his, I stumbled across his Wikipedia one day and read about this. But OK Cola, they tried to do this very focused Gen X branding cola where they got like some Daniel Klaus style illustrator to do these cans and the soda was called okay cola and it would have like some grim bald comic book guy on the can with like saggy eyes limited edition of one of four cans art like very proto i mean this stuff a lot of these things got used again later but but the whole it was all this self-deprecating like yeah the cola's just okay yeah and it was meant to appeal to gen x sensibilities and the authenticity as was understood in the 90s. Right. The, the thing failed, it did terrible in test markets, but it was a corporation attempting to do this sort exceptionally of Exceptionally mediocre. Yeah, exceptionally mediocre, self-deprecating kind of thing, which again, goes to your mise en abeme of, of authenticity, whereas if yeah. there's any complicity of the sponsor, right. then it's not... Right, yeah. it, That's that would be like a good example of like ironizing. Like the point of irony is to distance yourself from something that is like problematic to your authenticity complex. Right. But if the corporation is like obviously doing that, then like, yeah, they're complicit. They're in They're in on your ironic joke. So yeah. it no longer becomes appealing to you to do that. So no wonder it failed. Where do we go from here though? Yeah. Like, well, do yeah. you have any speculation about the future or what, what a post authenticity marketing environment would go? What would be the new metric? You've done a great job deconstructing, but do you see like what, what it would be a speculative model you'd see coming out of this yeah kind of researching this now and i don't really understand yet what what i think the new ethics of value should be if they're not authentic ones i have an instinct that the value should be measured with like specific contributions to like give a slant example there's uh it has been proposed in like a very unpractical and not realistic way that status should be based on taxes that that is social status so the amount of taxes that you're able to donate like would contribute to some sort of like ranking number and like that number would have to be visible at all times on like on your person right and it it would so it would be visible to people if there was like a dissonance between the, the amount of wealth that you can generate and and you have and the amount of, of like taxes you're, you're able to pay, basically. This, so this is a toy example, but in this toy example, we can see a way to align some sort of concrete action and like a social effect associated with that with like a visibility marker. I guess what I'm interested in is if it's possible to do that for, for other types of things. You know, you're, you're working on this campaign right now and like the brand wants it to be authentic. They think it'll be judged on whether your, your cast is able to um, deliver an authenticity performance. But is there a totally alternative mode of marketing where the brand has to deliver a certain form of social good and prove that in a way that's like legible and traceable to the audience. And I think that's where I hope that like the value and status that we associate with a brand could come from. I wonder what comes to mind in your mind when you say that probably something really cool. When I hear that, I wonder if the same words could be mapped onto something that's actually very problematic, like well, it's like, like Tom Chinese. Shoes well, it's also Chinese, like Chinese social of, scoring, right? But then on right. the other, a kind 
get a situation where corporations are competing to quote, quote, do good in society, but then you have like a performative, like needing refugees so that you can put your product in there in the same frame. Well, maybe that's not a particularly effective and altruistic method. Like that's that's one that I think should be invalidated. Like it's not useful to donate clothes like yeah. we produce a huge amount of fabric waste exactly. like donating yeah. clothes isn't useful to anybody right. clothes are extraordinarily cheap right. um, on the other hand a current problem is you can just do one good thing and spend like ten thousand dollars doing that and then spend a million dollars marketing it mm-hmm. right so if that's the starting ground then we basically need to reevaluate our epistemology mm-hmm. uh, from scratch like we can't rely on visual signals very mm-hmm. easily into uh, established value that means deprecating aesthetics as as a way of establishing whether you know something is is good or not and relying instead on very unintuitive models for interpreting and uh, ascertaining whether something is is meaningful whether something's like morally good or bad again I, I i'm not sure exactly what that looks like you said it might be very cool i think it is cool but it's also very hard to visualize and project because it's it's not intuitive the same way that like social construction isn't intuitive to somebody who hasn't encountered it before. It feels like things just are how they are, and not that like we're actively participating in like constructing and enacting those norms. I, I don't really believe that this will happen in our lifetime. Right. I mean, I have two things to say in response. Basically, I want to connect it back to something you said earlier when you compared a friend of yours creating this image and one that David Rudnick had created and it happened spontaneously Rudnick obviously has like a relatively substantial community that follows him on Twitter and that's disproportionate to your friend and so his his gesture is going to be a signal that travels farther than your friends and what I think we see there is that again I mean I know it's becoming a cliche to speak about tribalism or whatever but uh, I mean you say this I think also in your essay and we see this produced in like um, you know group social media accounts different different ways that social media are being colonized by groups of people on one account that maybe it's going to mean a new kind of guild system where we're producing products are coming out of um, and and products not necessarily meaning commercial products products meaning any 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 kind of cultural production is, is coming out of groups that carry with it um, a certain context and then that's going to be valued um, in relation to others so it's going to be a breaking down of this neoliberal individualism where the weight of one's value is totally on your own shoulders but it's actually collectively held and that may sound utopic but it seems like already that things are kind of going that direction i agree We ran a poll asking what your preferred way of supporting us is, and most people said merch. We still have a few of the very first run of our New Models t-shirts left on our site. Our shop is at newmodels.io. Scroll all the way to the bottom. We'll also be launching some capsule collections and collaborations, so keep an eye out for them. We recommend you treat our t-shirts like Pokemon and catch them all. It's the best way to support us and the best way to signal to your IRL feed because that's what t-shirts have always done, right? To check out our shop, visit newmodels.io and scroll all the way down back to the podcast.
Maybe we leave it there. There's a second part I was going to say, but maybe it just makes it more complicated. Yeah, I've, this opened yeah. up a whole can of worms for me, too, of speculative ways this could go. Maybe we should end it and definitely talk to you Yeah, again yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah, me too. Definitely check out subpixel.space. Uh, yeah. Toby's site and read his essays. Yeah. We love to hear from you. And thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, I think we should catch up in a... Uh, few, uh, check yeah, in again in the near cool. future, yeah, in the near future, yeah, and see how things are progressing. But anyway, thank you, Toby Shoren. Thank you. Shout out, shout out, Betty Wang. Shout out, Brennan Savvy. Shout out, David Rudnick. Who else cool. do I? Who else do I shout out? Um, shout out, Soft Surplus. Shout out, Cal Capozo. Uh, <laughs> shout out, Sam Hart. <laughs> shout out, other internet. Shout out, Darren Kong. <laughs> L Train. Yeah. yeah fuck off L Train. Oh, that <laughs> doesn't that doesn't matter. That's all good. We're cool. Yeah, I'll train closing 2019. (laughs) Kill yourself. Big shout out for that. No, yeah. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Toby Shoren. Again, this episode was recorded live at the dinner table in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We'll be back in the studio with Dan Keller next episode. Stay tuned and make sure to set newmodels.io as your homepage so you don't miss it. You don't miss it. You don't miss it. You don't miss it.